Greetings, this is Jessica Schmidt, Director of Investment Communications here at Diamond Hill, and this is Understanding Edge. I'm joined today on the podcast by Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist for our Fixed Income Team here at Diamond Hill. While Doug is often the host of our podcast, this year has been a challenging time for fixed income investors, and we've asked him back to share his insights on the effect it's had on fixed income markets. As always, stay safe and stay healthy, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Douglas Gimple. Hi, Doug. Welcome to the podcast again. It is great to have you back with us. Thanks. It is uh, great to be back. I look forward to these now uh, all the time. <laughs> I bet. Well, so Doug, you and I spoke last month around this time, and our conversation was partially focused on a review of fixed income markets year to date. And we talked about the fact that the first six months were challenging for fixed income markets, and maybe that's putting it a little lightly. <laughs> and then, of course, in July, we had a bit of a respite as markets stabilized, and there was a small indication that inflation was maybe starting to come down a bit. Well, here we are, you and I sitting here now in mid-September, and we know that inflation is still running pretty hot based on the July reading, even though it did drop a bit from that June number. And of course, we had Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell make some pretty impactful comments at the Jackson Hole Economic Symposium. So I'd love to start there and have you share with us what transpired at Jackson Hole and what impact that had on the fixed income markets. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jackson Hole was was big this year. Um, it essentially, uh, not just this year, but most years, it's the bridge between the July and September meeting. Um, and this speech uh, from Powell was, was direct and to the point. It took him only about eight minutes uh, to reassert the Fed's commitment to battling inflation through continued rate hikes. And I want to share a quote uh, from him that I think is pretty straightforward. And, and it goes, uh, quote, while higher interest rates, slower growth, and softer labor market conditions will bring down inflation, they will also bring some pain to households and businesses. These are the unfortunate costs of reducing inflation, but a failure to, re to restore price stability would mean far greater pain, end quote. So you had this very straightforward, this is going to hurt. Um, and the equity markets reacted, you know, as you would expect, you know, and those eight minutes basically cost investors about $78 billion as the S&P dropped uh, almost three and a half percent on that day for the worst single day performance since mid-June of this year. The fixed income markets didn't fare much better, though. Uh, you know, the reaction wasn't as knee-jerk as what we saw in the equity markets. So if we look at from August 26th, the date of this speech, to September 9th, the two-year and treasury, the two-year and 10-year treasury yields have climbed by roughly 16 and 27 basis points respective, respectively, uh, reflecting the market's acceptance of the Fed's commitment to battle inflation. Over that same time period, uh, the Bloomberg US aggregate index has lost 1.71%. So the fixed income markets felt the aforementioned pain but not nearly as much as what we've seen in the equity markets. Uh, but we're also seeing a capitulation in the Fed futures market. So prior to the speech, the market was pricing in a 50% chance that the September FOMC meeting would result in a 75 basis point increase. If we look today, which is September 12th, 
the market's now pricing in a 92% chance of a 75 basis point increase. But, you know, Jess, the, the one thing that we have to keep in mind, everything can change because we're getting the August inflation report on September 13th. But similar to the June meeting, the inflation report is coming out during the blackout period for the Fed, meaning that we're not going to get any kind of comments or insights from any members of the FOMC as to how this upcoming inflation report may impact their thinking about the meeting next week. So if we see inflation take a major step back, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the market uh, is pricing in any kind of expectations for the September 21st meeting. So it sounds like we're, we're set for interest rates going up. We just simply don't know how much necessarily at this point. But Doug, interest rates only seem to be part of the equation here, right? The other part that perhaps hasn't been either highlighted or talked about as much in the media is quantitative tightening and how the Fed plans to reduce its balance sheet. So what do we know thus far about quantitative tightening and what should we expect? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. You know, there, there are two different sides to this. And, you know, the one side is on the treasury side and that's, that's pretty straightforward. The other side is, is the mortgage aspect of it. And for right now, I'll just talk about treasuries. So, you know, you can actually go out and look at the Federal Reserve's website and you can look at their balance sheet holdings uh, and see exactly what securities they hold. And by doing that, you can kind of figure out, you know, what they're going to be doing in the next several months. And so the treasury caps uh, or the amount that will be allowed to roll off the balance sheet each month uh, is increasing for treasuries from 30 billion to 60 billion uh, as of earlier this month in September. So we look at the holdings in September, there's one holding that will mature on September 15th, uh, an additional three maturities on September 30th. The total of these three or these four maturing securities is roughly 43 billion, meaning that the Fed will need to allow an additional 17 billion in Treasury bills to run off as well to meet that $60 billion target. We see a similar pattern in October with another 43 billion in maturities coming due. Now, November has four maturities as well, but these total nearly 110 billion, meaning that you know, we'll hit that 60 billion. Uh, that'll roll off, and then they'll reinvest the remaining 50 billion. So not as much, uh, you know, angst or uncertainty around that November number. Uh, but you know, when we look at, you know, from when QT started in early June to now, you know, we can see a net reduction in Treasury holdings at the Fed of roughly 92 billion, um, and that's as of uh, September 7th. They report every week um, on Wednesday, and so we only have until through September 7th. Uh, but we see that reduction from that that passive movement that we started uh, back in June. Okay, so that's the treasury process. And you mentioned the mortgage process. And in your monthly commentary this this month, which is on our website, you mentioned that the mortgage process is a bit more complicated than the treasury side. So can you shed some light on that area of the market for us? Yeah, Jess, that's exactly right. It's it's what I refer to as being a little bit cloudier than what we see in the treasury market. You know, it's pretty clean cut how the treasury component's going to work. You've got the maturities, you know how much is coming in, you can adjust accordingly. Uh, but thinking about mortgages, it's different because your, your payments can vary. 
Uh, and what I mean by that is, is as rates are going higher, you have less money coming into mortgages as prepayments slow down. You're not seeing the refinancing, and I'll get into some of the, the nuts and bolts of that. When quantitative tightening 2.0 began on June 1st, the 30-year fixed rate mortgage average, uh, it's climbed from 5.09% on June 1st to 5.89% as of September 9th. So that's a huge move higher in just, you know, what would that be, three months or so. Higher mortgage rates result in slower prepayment speeds, meaning that mortgage holders are much less likely to refinance their mortgage. And that, if they were doing that, that would accelerate prepayments. So payments coming into mortgage securities will slow as we adjust to this higher rate environment. So consider this, 45% of the mortgages held by the Fed on their balance sheet have coupons in the one and a half to 2% range and nearly 40, 48% of the mortgages held are in the two and a half to three and a half percent range. This means that despite the Fed's best intentions, their ability to meet the target of 35 billion in mortgages rolling off uh, the balance sheet becomes more and more challenging. Who out there is going to refinance their mortgage out of a one and a half to three and a half percent to something in the range of 6%? You know, we have to look at major life events like divorce, relocation, death, or downsizing. Um, that's what's going to really be um, the driver for any kind of prepayments that would occur, as opposed to in the past where you had refinancing just to get to a lower rate. So you're not going to see that. Um, so that's going to slow things down. Another wrinkle that we see you know, overall in this mortgage process, the mortgages purchased and held by the Fed are TBA or to be announced mortgages. And those can take anywhere from one to three months to settle. And since the Fed books its trades after those trades settle, this means there's a considerable delay in the actual impact of QT. And we can see this by looking at the mortgages held by the Fed and seeing that the balance of those mortgages has actually increased by $2 billion since quantitative tightening began. But if we look back just two weeks prior to the most recent update, so if we look at you know, where we are now to where we were two weeks ago, we do see that there's been a reduction of about 16 billion. So the delays are starting to catch up and we're starting to see some progress in the mortgage space. But again, you go back to that uncertainty of you know, the speed of that money coming in compared to what you see on the treasury market, which is very straightforward. And Doug, how has all of how has all of this impacted uh, the team here at Diamond Hill, the fixed income team at Diamond Hill? From, from an investment opportunities perspective? I mean, how is the current environment uh, impacting what you guys are finding in, in the market? Um, you know, as bottom-up investors, you don't focus on where the Fed's going to take rates next, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what are, you guys, what are you guys thinking today? Yeah, it's, it's been incredibly interesting. You know, between geopolitical events, scorching hot inflation, which is, as you said, starting to cool down just a little bit, but still historically high, uh, spread in interest rate fluctuations and overall market angst on a day-to-day -day basis, it's been a, a target-rich environment for those that focus on individual security selection. As you said, you know, since we don't focus on attempting to predict the future path of interest rates, we're not as concerned with you know, how the day-to-day -day gyrations in the market are going to impact our overall portfolio, but we're focused on the, the long-term prospects for undervalued securities that we can find on those days of uncertainty when you've got, you know, rates moving up, moving down, 
uh, intraday. Uh, so whether it's finding attractive opportunities in the commercial mortgage-backed security space or in the corporate space, as spreads have widened out from where they had been for, for several years at, at what we believe to be you know, pretty tight levels, uh, environments like we've been experiencing since the beginning of this year really provide ample opportunities for those that are willing to do the work, that are willing to build you know, a portfolio security by security, and you know, not relying on attempting to predict where rates are going or rotating in and out of sectors. So an environment like we've seen this year, though challenging, um, is something that we, you know, we look forward to and provides a lot of opportunity for us in putting together and maintaining our portfolios. And with, with the uncertain outlook on inflation rates, how QT is going to impact the fixed income market and yields. Um, maybe you could share your perspective on why wouldn't an investor be better off simply going passive right now? A very good question. Uh, and I've been in this business for, for close to 25 years, which one makes me old, but uh, <laughs> two means that I've heard this more and more recently uh, about going passive. And I think you know, I think 2022 represents the strongest argument yet for active management and fixed income. As we discussed last month and, and today, this has been the worst year by far for the fixed income markets as rising rates, widening spreads have combined to deliver you know, challenging performance across the board. And if you choose to invest passively, while you get the benefit of lower fees, you're exposed to the potential downside of rising rates, widening spreads, or seismic shifts in the market. Investing in the passive version of the Bloomberg U.S. Aggregate Bond Index means that you know, you're assuming considerable interest rate risk duration north of, of six, which is that sensitivity to interest rate movements, with no means of mitigating that risk. You're just accepting it. Uh, an active manager can limit some of that interest rate risk by actively managing the overall duration of the portfolio, even you know, if it's only within a range of plus or minus 10% of the benchmark's duration. And the benchmark is roughly 40% in treasury securities, a level that's continually increased since the financial crisis and presents the risk of concentration in one, sec one sector over another uh, and other more attractive areas of the market. By opening up your fixed income investments to out-of-benchmark opportunities, one can invest in something like collateralized mortgage obligations in lieu of pass-through mortgages such as TBAs, which can help to mitigate some of that duration volatility that we talked about earlier, that your duration on your mortgages is going to extend because uh, people aren't going to be refinancing as much, the, the mortgages will be around much longer. You can mitigate some of that risk by looking to other types of structures within residential mortgages. Other off-benchmark opportunities, such as some esoteric asset-backed securities, can deliver attractive yield levels while maintaining benchmark-like credit quality in shorter duration. So, you know, even when one is constrained to the investment-grade universe, there are ample off-benchmark opportunities that offer value and justify, you know, that fee differential that you would see between passive and active, uh, because you can, you know, open up that toolbox to invest in sectors and subsectors of the market that the benchmark's not considering and not you know representing uh, in their portfolio. Well, that's certainly a helpful perspective, Doug. Um, I really appreciate your thoughts and 
Thank you for joining me on the podcast again. I know we'll have a lot to talk about as the days and months roll forward. So uh, we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, Jess. A, a pleasure as always.